Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Good afternoon. Thank you, Virginia. Uh, what a great honour to be invited to give the Joan Kerner half oration and interrogation. Uh, this afternoon, and uh, I'm going to start with a spruik, if we could get that slide up, please, because I'm not just here out of the goodness of my heart. I'm here to enlist your support uh, to see that these laws happen, and those details are there. Please take them down. I'd also like to start with an, an acknowledgement and an apology. The acknowledgement is that not everybody in this room agrees with these laws, and some feel very strongly that they shouldn't exist. And I deeply respect that view, particularly if it's a moral or religious view. I very much respect your right to hold that view. I disagree that you should impose that view on everybody else. The apology is that some of what I'm going to tell you today is very hard to listen to. And in my experience, whenever I talk about it, it stirs ghosts in the room. There are people, I have no doubt, sitting here today that have stories which will chime with some of the stories you're going to hear. And I apologise if they cause further distress, but this is an issue we can no longer look away from. We have to look it squarely in the eye. How did I get to be here? One of the lowest examples of humanity that could possibly exist, a two-time failed Logie nominee. How do I get to be talking about this subject? <clears throat> uh, from watching my own father die, badly, in pain, 20 years ago, uh, helped in the only way that people can still be helped. Allegedly, the morphine was upped to ease the pain. But over those three days, it didn't ease his pain and it didn't ease ours. And I will never forget the most profoundly shocking thing I ever saw, which was that three days. And as I speak to you now, I see my father's face. It wasn't at that moment I was in my late 30s that I thought, well, I, I believe we should have a law for assisted dying. <coughs> Like most people in that situation, like most families, we were traumatised. It happened, we got on with our lives, we buried my father. It wasn't until many years later that I read an article in the monthly magazine by an Australian writer called Margareta Poz. And her father, Hugo, was Dutch, where they have a law for euthanasia. And he was dying of cancer. And she was invited over for his final week. A date had been set where the doctors were going to come and with his consent end his life and his suffering. And she described this extraordinarily civilised week where he farewelled his friends, where he rang his ex-wife and reconciled, where his children were around him, and where on his last night on earth, all the big things had been said, they had a lovely family dinner, he spent his last night listening to Mozart, looking at the night sky, took a sleeping pill, got up early the next morning. Remember, this was a man dying of cancer. This is not a lifestyle choice as people like to paint it sometimes. And when the doctors came at the duly appointed time and he gave his consent, this man who was seriously ill was humanely helped to die. And I contrasted my father's death with Margareta's father's death, and I asked myself, why can't we have this law in Australia? That was about two and a half years ago, and I, I didn't intend to end up on this path, but I pretty much spent my time full-time since then trying to answer that question. And in that time, I have travelled around the world and around this country and spent thousands and thousands of hours talking with people on all sides of this equation. 
The very first place I started was in fact an anti-euthanasia convention with speakers from all over the world in Adelaide. And I uh, took very careful note of the very powerful arguments against, and I used those as my guide when I traveled overseas to the Netherlands and Belgium and twice to Oregon to measure up what I was being told against what I found. In the end, I came to the strong conclusion that the reason we don't have this law in Australia is a very bad reason. It is, as I mentioned in that video, it is a narrow but powerful group of people, very paternalistic group of people, largely men, the heads of our religious organisations, many of the heads of our medical organisations, uh, who are deciding for personal beliefs that these laws are unacceptable very much against the evidence of how these laws work overseas, strongly against the evidence of the damage being caused in our own society, and deeply against the frequently and broadly expressed wishes of the Australian population. So I decided, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, you see street marches for pretty much everyone, but there's one group of people you never see marching in the streets, and that's the terminally ill and the chronically ill. And why is that? Because they are our weakest and most vulnerable. And they are actually being, they're actually having the help that they so deeply request being denied to them by some of our most powerful organisations claiming to be protecting the vulnerable. So I decided to set up an organisation called Go Gentle Australia to help be their voice. And that's why that slides up on the screen, or was up on the screen. If you could put it back there, please, I'd appreciate it. Uh, because I want you, those of you who believe in this, to also be their voice. And one of the first things we did was pull together this book called The Damage Done because I've noticed a common thread amongst those that oppose these laws, which is that they make the actual suffering in our community magically disappear when they argue against these laws. And this book is a collection of 72 testimonies. We pulled it together in just four weeks. We could have written twice this book easily, three times by now, from families, carers, patients, doctors, nurses, coroners, about the damage that is happening in our community because we don't have a law to assist people to die. And I'd like to read to you just the introduction because it sets the scene for today. As she was dying of cancer in 2015, 90-year-old Eileen Dorr kept a diary. Despite her clearly stated wish to die, she was forced to endure 17 painful weeks until the disease finally took her. Hoping to hasten nature's course, she began to starve herself to death. In her diary, she wrote, My country's laws decree death by a thousand cuts for me. Eileen's is one of 72 testimonies in this book that describe with horrifying clarity the damage being done across Australia in the absence of a law for assisted dying. Written by sons, daughters, husbands, wives, partners and friends, as well as the dying themselves, they detail trauma and suffering on a staggering scale. The testimonies have come from people of all ages and walks of life. They represent almost every Australian state and territory. They are blue-collar, white-collar, devoutly religious, avowedly not. The diseases they faced are mostly cancer, but also multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease, and other medical horrors. What brings them together is the cruel way in which they all suffered or suffer still. With descriptions such as akin to torture and like a horror movie, 
What strikes you about these testimonies is the repeated expressions from those left behind of shock, anger, and helplessness, sometimes reaching back decades. Some describe keeping grandchildren and children away from a cherished parent or aunt or grandfather because the dying was so hideous, so scarring. Talking about death is hard enough. Talking about bad deaths is even tougher. It takes courage. For many, it means admitting to the terrible sense that they failed their loved ones. Perhaps bravest of all are the testimonies from doctors and nurses, some of whom have openly admitted to helping patients die. The trauma many of them have had to deal with in the face of their patients' suffering is palpable. May their example encourage others in the medical profession to come forward and speak openly about what they've seen and even what they do. Had the abuses, cruelty and harm inflicted by our laws and so vividly captured in this book happened within one institution, we would long ago have had a royal commission. But because they've happened in many places, palliative care wards, nursing homes, general hospitals, people's houses, and because each has been a private tragedy, they've been invisible, deniable, ignorable. This book is not intended as a critique of Australia's palliative care services or the dedicated doctors and nurses who give their best. Rather, it reveals what happens despite their best efforts. In June 2016, a cross-party Victorian parliamentary inquiry into end-of-life choices reported on the evidence it had recovered, uncovered. The most extensive of its kind ever held in Australia, its findings, gathered over 10 months, mirror the anguished testimonies listed here. Of inadequate pain relief being delivered to dying patients for fear of breaking the law. Of the inability of palliative care, despite its many benefits, to relieve all suffering. Of people being put on trial for helping those they love find a merciful end. Of doctors being forced to break the law in order to help their suffering patients die, but having to do so without support, regulation or accountability. And of the trauma experienced by families as they watch their loved ones die harrowing deaths. The testimony of Victorian coroner John Olley in particular rocked the committee. Coroner Olley told of the horrific ways in which desperately ill Victorians are taking their own lives in order to end their suffering. This included a 90-year-old man with prostate cancer who killed himself with a nail gun. Coroner Ollie estimated these violent, self-inflicted deaths are happening at the rate of one a week in Victoria. He went out of his way to emphasise that these people did not have a history of mental illness, that they came from loving families, and that they were beyond the help of palliative care. Faced with such evidence, the committee found that maintaining the status quo was unacceptable. By a majority of six to two, reflecting the 80% support amongst Australia, the Australian public, they recommended a law for assisted dying be passed in Victoria. There's every reason to believe that the harm the committee found in Victoria is happening across Australia and that it's not going to go away or get less. As our population ages, it will only increase, and yet our politicians have declined to address it. Over the last two decades, now 30 attempts have been made in different state parliaments to pass a law. Only one has got to a stage where the detail of such a law could be debated. And the claim most commonly used to defeat it, that, quote, no safeguard can be devised to protect the vulnerable, has never been seriously examined, despite voluminous evidence from overseas that safeguards can and do work. The testimonies written in this book stand as a rebuke to this dereliction of duty. They are serious questions of us as a society. After all, 
Who could be more vulnerable and in need of protection than a person who is dying? Enough copies of this book have been printed to send to every state and federal politician in Australia. Should they continue to stand in the way of a law for assisted dying, they will do so in full knowledge of the suffering taking place in our community because of that refusal. Suffering that will continue every week, of every month, of every year, until they act. The damage done. Who amongst our politicians has the courage to address it and in so doing reflect the wishes of the overwhelming majority of Australians? Virginia, over to you. You spoke to us about the really difficult time that you and your family went through watching your father die and you've spoken about that before. Many of us have been through that, have seen loved ones die a difficult death and, and even grappled with the issue of euthanasia. But we don't all become advocates like you have on this issue. What do you think it was that tipped you into that place and, and are you surprised at where you find yourself now? Well, partly it was opportunity. I had stepped out of the media and I was looking for something to do which I felt had public good. Are we hearing um, Andrew? No. Let's get that um, lapel microphone of Andrew's turned up, please. There we, there we go. go. Thank you. Try to say that again, Andrew. Partly it was opportunity. I'd stepped out of the media and I was looking to do something that I felt had public good. And I keep files on lots of things. I'm, I'm like, I guess, the Kremlin. And uh, <laughs> on things that interest me. And I went back to the one I had on euthanasia. And it was such a brilliant collision of moral, legal, ethical all these things. So I decided to answer that question. Why can't we have this law in Australia? What's moved me from a position of intellectual and personal inquiry to one of advocacy is what I've discovered along the way. This degree of suffering, what is happening in our suburbs every week. Uh, you know, in the last three weeks, for example, these are two emails I've had from Victoria. Uh, one from a woman whose best friend is dying of cancer and who is invoking her legal right to hasten it in the only way she can, which is to starve herself to death, and what it, what it is like to watch this happening. And the other from a nurse whose uncle, dying of cancer, set himself on fire in a car park. I keep hearing these stories, and I keep seeing on the other side uh, how these stories are completely made invisible. Those that oppose these laws never refer to this. And so what has moved me to a position of advocacy is this strong sense, not just sense, this strong evidentiary uh, realisation that there is a great social injustice happening in our country and there's a tragedy happening in our midst which could and should be addressed. You, you do see it strongly in terms of sides, don't you? That this is actually a, a strongly divided for and against issue in Australia. We'll stick with Australia for the moment. Sure. Uh, well, yes it is, um, except those sides change. You know, one of the testimonies in here comes from the family of Ken Dixon. And he was, and they are, devout Christians who I'm sure uh, did not believe in this law until they found uh, Ken, who had prostate cancer, uh, hanging on the clothesline. And uh, he left a note, this tragic note, written on a to-do-today list, saying, I'm so sorry, I couldn't take this anymore. And the, f and the family collectively... Uh, I think there's seven of them have, have signed their testimony in this book saying, look, we're devout Christians, but surely something can be done to help uh, someone like our father dying of a terminal illness. So let's talk a little more about, about that entrenched group of, you said just before, mostly men mm -hmm. um, and powerful aligned voices 
who you say, uh, shut this discussion down and shut down any legislative change. Who are they? Uh, it's two groups, and they are, I guess, the definition of paternalism. It, it is, at its core, it is the church, but most particularly the Catholic Church. And that is because they have uh, a, a core belief in the sanctity of human life and that only God giveth and God taketh away the hours, a belief I respect. Uh, as I said, I, I have no issue with their belief. I have an issue with their imposition of it on everyone else. Um, that view is expressed in various ways. First of all, in perfectly straightforward democratic ways, in that they invoke the democratic right to encourage the congregations to write to MPs, as they're doing right now in Victoria, and they go and represent themselves to MPs as leaders of their denominations, as they're doing right now in Victoria. But also in subtler ways, uh, through groups that are affiliated with them, that have been extremely good over the years at distorting uh, the facts of this debate and spreading misinformation. But there is another way in which religion expresses itself, and it's quite a hidden way, and it's actually the most effective way in this debate, in that 60%, uh, or just under 60% of our palliative care in this country is actually provided by the Catholic Church. And uh, they do a magnificent job. They are really good at what they do. But their very core belief, handed down from the 13th century, St Thomas Aquinas, is we will not prolong nor hasten death. There is nothing they will do, because it's against their belief, to hasten the death of a patient who they may not be able to help in any other way and who by their own records uh, might persistently and clearly request to have their death hastened. It is against their core beliefs to hasten it. So they present themselves as a medical argument, as in, no, palliative care can take care of this. And nowhere do you ever see it mentioned that it's actually their core Catholic belief that is driving the argument that they're making. Uh, the other group, which is not necessarily religious, is the hierarchy of our medical bodies, most particularly the AMA. Now, the AMA last year did a survey of uh, its members on this issue. And reflecting similar medical organisations in countries where these laws exist, their membership was split, almost 50-50 on this issue. 45% uh, of doctors uh, thought there should be a law. Uh, a third of them said if there was a law that they would they would assist a patient if so asked. Half of them said that they certainly believed that assisted dying was good medical practice. And two-thirds of them agreed uh, with the question, uh, with the proposition that palliative care uh, could not always uh, deal with the suffering of its patients. So the correct position for the AMA to have taken to reflect their membership on this would have been that taken by their sister organisations overseas, which is a neutral position. But the AMA consistently uh, uses its uh, strong public platform to say doctors don't support these laws. And in the debate that just happened in Tasmania, and they did this in South Australia last year too, amongst the lines of attack that the AMA ran were, were under this legislation, what's to stop someone with acne being helped to die? Which is not only a load of specious bullshit, it completely steps past the actual suffering that people with cancer, serious illnesses, motor neurone disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, it so trivialises that level of suffering. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I want to get, try and get into the mind of the doctors in just a moment, but let's go back a step to the, the religious organisations of the Catholic Church in particular. I wonder if there might not be a moment that's needed in the debate, and, uh, and I, I have no particular role or, or position that I take in this debate, so I'll play devil's avocado as someone said to me the other day. 
which I really quite liked. Yeah, I like it, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if it does your cause any good to keep saying things like, and I respect their view completely, and I have no problem with that view, when it seems to me that you do. No, the, the, I the, yeah, I have a problem with the imposition of it on others. No, more than that. I suspect you actually deep down have a problem with the view of anyone having being able to say that uh, anyone else or any belief system has control over the taking and the giving of life. Uh, we have abortion laws that are legalised in this country and therefore the, the logical end of that would be some kind of euthanasia law. To keep dancing on the head of a pin when you clearly do have... A, a, it seems to me, a problem with that proposition, whether it be imposed or even just held within that, that tightly held group, I wonder if that's sort of a little bit of bad faith and perhaps doesn't, doesn't do your cause any good. Well, uh, I'm not... Other people will judge if it does the cause good, but um, you, you misrepresent me. I do genuinely respect their view. If it is... There are people I've spoken to within uh, this debate who strongly believe in the salvational value of suffering, who believe that death, that we should suffer as we die, uh, the example of Christ on the cross, and I, they are welcome to that. They, and so I don't actually, I really do not dis, disapprove of that. Dying, there's, a, there's only one thing we know about dying, Virginia, is that when we die, it is our dying alone. We don't know how our dying is going to be. And, and some people have deathbed conversions, some people go the other way. I do remember a palliative care nurse at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney at 3 o'clock in the morning saying to me, people die pretty much as they've lived. They don't, you know, if they've always been cantankerous, they die cantankerous. So, I, no, I genuinely, uh, if, if that is your belief when you die, because it is the single most autonomous thing we're ever going to do, die. We're only doing it on our own. I do support that. My issue is very much about the imposition of that belief on others. And, and our laws as they currently exist enforce the imposition of that belief. But I'm trying to get to com the complexity of, of the paradox, you know, w within that group of people who may even believe that too, yes. who may be, you know, baptised uh, as Catholics and, and live that way, and yet at the, end of the at the end of life find themselves in this position of wanting to be freed and released of suffering, but nonetheless uh, understanding that this is the philosophy within which I, I have to live yes. and have to die. So if that's the case and their suffering is somehow prolonged, you can't sit here and say, from the, nonetheless, I respect that, I be that belief system, because that belief system is harmful to that person, even if they are a Catholic. But the point about these laws, the very key word which is often skipped over, is they're voluntary. So if somebody doesn't believe in that, they have every right not to believe in that. That, that is the whole point. My issue is that the way things currently exist, a narrow group of people are imposing their belief system on everyone else, and in a very specific way. I'm not talking about a general philosophical point. Let me explain how this plays out. Under our current law, in palliative care, and uh, let me preface this by saying what I'm talking about hopefully is going to apply to very, very few people that you ever meet. The kind of people that this law would help is a small number of people, but very real. So under our current law, in palliative care, if you're suffering, and we'll talk about suffering later, not just pain, but suffering, which can have lasted for a long, long time, can no longer be controlled by palliative care. They employ a thing called terminal sedation. Now, the figures on this are, from palliative care themselves, these are not made up, these are their own statistics, are that something like 7.5% of their patients who die 
which is about 1,300 people a year, our national road toll, have severe physical symptoms in their terminal stages. So they're the kind of people that will be terminally sedated. And what is terminal sedation? That slowly, it's called titrating, drugging a patient into a coma from which they're never expected to awake. That's one of the things that palliative care say. We've got powerful drugs at the end of life that can deal with all pain. It's a response to suffering and pain they haven't been able to control. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's been no pain and suffering. The point is, to get back to the, uh, personal beliefs, under our law, doctors have absolute right, unchallengeable right, to decide how much and at what speed they will give that pain relief. And I have spoken to and read of, and I can give you testimonies of doctors whose strong religious belief is what the Pope says, there is value in suffering, who talk about how wonderful it is that people can grow through their cancer. And the, this is a direct quote, I'm not making it up. And if that doctor with unfettered power, no matter the request of you, the patient, or the family, they decide how fast you are given that pain relief. And let me tell you a story, and this is very shocking. And this is in Rodney Simon's book, A Time to Die. And this happened in your city, right in the middle of your city. A man called Rudy Dobrin, motor neuron disease, a shocking, unpalatable disease, invoked his legal right at the end of this disease to try and hasten it by stopping all food and fluids. And he was persuaded to go into a Catholic palliative care facility for palliation. In other words, to sedate him, to make sure that the worst of the suffering, which by the way, when you're starving yourself to death and can take a long time, is psychological, would at least be in some ways controlled. Rodney Stein pulled the medical records through Freedom of Information of Rudy Dobrin. And in this Catholic care facility, despite a clear record of his psychological, and physical and emotional suffering, was left for 32 days before he was fully sedated. And it took him almost seven weeks to die. And as Rodney Symes said, this didn't happen in a desert. This happened in the middle of Melbourne with full facilities. Now, there is nothing in the law which said that those doctors couldn't have sedated that man the minute he arrived, but they didn't. And our law gives doctors unfettered power to make that decision. And if your core belief is I'll never hasten death, or more than that, that suffering has virtue and that you will grow through your disease, then you can impose that belief as much as you like. And when the argument is made as it is and it's powerful to MPs that all we have to do is give more resources to palliative care, it completely ignores the fact that you could give every resource in the world and if a doctor has this core religious belief, then there's a limit to how much and how quickly they're going to help you. Leaving aside um, some doctors' religious beliefs as the second group that you talk about um, being strongly opposed to, to any change in the law, I wonder how much of, um, of some doctors' anxiety about it might be then also legal redress and responsibility yeah. and what might come to them later on and a lack of protection for them. Yeah, well, that's in my... One of the things that's amazed me in, in this is that I hadn't realised... I assumed doctors were pretty good with death, but they're terrible at it. They're scared of it. They don't like talking about it. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the big issues. The Victorian Committee report, uh, it's been really interesting. I've never really gone into the granular detail of how government works before, and I've read a lot of these submissions and transcripts, and if there's one drumbeat through all of it, it's that everybody's bad at talking about this subject. Um, 
The irony is that, as the committee found, doctors are assisting patients to die right now, but they are doing it without any protection at all. They're doing it without any consultation. They're doing it without any oversight. They're, they're not able to talk to their colleagues. They're not able to get a second opinion. They're not able to do any of the things that the law that is being proposed will do. And there is a deeper irony to this, which is when you think about it, the AMA's position, for example, arguing against this law, what they're actually saying is it's much better if our members just continue to break the law and we all turn a blind eye with no protection rather than that we give doctors protection because this is how, why these laws exist overseas. These laws, nowhere do they legalise assisted suicide. What they, they give a narrow uh, set of criteria within which doctors can act to help dying patients and if they follow that criteria, the doctors are protected from prosecution. I want to at some point, and a little bit later, we'll run through what the state of play is internationally. But it, it, when I dived into this, um, this subject because of our discussion today, Andrew, it was fascinating to me, and I had no prior knowledge, that this discussion always breaks down, it seems to me, in a, into a contest between palliative care and euthanasia. Has it historically always been thus? In this country, yes, and I think that's really tragic. And... Um I think the person that speaks best to, this, to it in this country, well, there's two. Uh, one was a man called Clive Deverell. And Clive Deverell, uh, you may not have heard his name, but he started palliative care in Western Australia. He was the first president of palliative care. And in the last couple of years, Clive started to speak openly about uh, the great tragedy, that palliative care had become a weapon in this argument and a weapon against these laws when it was clear that within their own walls... They had what he called nightmare sessions where they would talk about the patients they couldn't help. And it was clear that what was happening at the very end of life was being shut down. That conversation about it was being shut down. And Clive um, spoke about this publicly in Western Australia as the former head of palliative care, so a pretty persuasive witness. Clive himself had cancer. And on uh, election day in Western Australia earlier this year, Clive shot himself in a public toilet, and in the farewell note that he left, which was a long one to his family, and it wasn't just about this, but it's relevant that he said this, he wrote that suicide is legal but euthanasia is not. Now, that's a pretty powerful finger being pointed at his own organisation. The other person that speaks powerfully to this is the father of Australian palliative care, the emeritus professor, Professor Ian Maddox, the first... Uh, president of the Australian New Zealand Palliative Association, um, who says that if helping someone who is dying with compassion and love is what palliative care is all about, then assisted dying is part of that, and it's time the profession embraced it. And he's consistently tried to build a bridge between those who advocate for these laws and palliative care, because the truth is, assisted dying is the essence of palliation. And the example of that happened, again, in this very community last year. Some of you may have seen an Australian story featuring uh, a man called Bernard Erica and Dr Rodney Syme. Bernard Erica was dying of tongue and throat cancer. And uh, as a result of the Australian story, it became known that Dr Syme had offered or potentially offered Bernard Erica Nembatal, a drug that can peacefully end his life. And the Medical Board of Australia brought an action against Dr Rodney Syme, ordering him to cease and desist 
from endangering the lives of his patients. So Dr. Syme did something he'd wanted to do for a long time. He took it to a public tribunal. He took it to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, who heard the case against him, heard Dr. Syme's explanation, which was that the deep psychological distress that this man faces in the event of his certain death and the suffering that lies ahead is what I'm trying to help him face. And in offering the provision of these drugs, it is not to offer him death, it is to help him deal with the remainder of his life. They heard from Bernard Erica himself, who said in two submissions, very clearly, no doctor has been able to offer me any comfort from the distress and anxiety I'm facing, knowing what lies ahead, until I met Dr. Syme. And this has given me enormous comfort knowing that if this thing gets out of control, now I don't want to die wired up in machines in palliative care. If this gets out of control, I can be in control of how things end. And the tribunal, in hearing this, and it was two doctors and a lawyer and two palliative care physicians as expert advisors, made the following judgment. In fact, I've bought it here because I hoped you might ask me about it. I want to get the words exactly right. They said, Dr. Syme is entirely focused upon supporting the patient in life rather than preempting the patient's death. They also found the following in support of Dr. Syme. The right of any individual of sound mind to seek reassurance that they will be able to, if they wish, control the manner of their dying. The palliative effect on a patient knowing that they are dying and that the reassurance of the promise or actual possession of the drug does not, from the patient's perspective, place them at any risk. In other words, what they were saying is that this is palliative care because the people in palliative care who they have an incredibly hard job. Dying can be really complicated. It's on many levels. It's psychological, it's emotional, it's physical, it's psychic, and they're trying to deal with all these things. And all the people I spoke to in palliative care, including in Catholic palliative care who obviously don't support these laws, they all talked about two things. One, the bad deaths that they wish they could have done more for, and two, what's referred to as existential suffering. Now, now, that's not a philosophical thing. Existential suffering is the actual pain and suffering that you feel, the core of your existence, which can happen as you're dying, which is many things. It's physical pain, it's loss of control, it's loss of independence, it's fatigue, it's the nature of the treatment, it's the side effects of treatment, it's nausea, it's so many things. I, I'm actually going to distress you if I go through it all. But it's a totality of these things, which is also known as total pain syndrome. And uh, that is the hardest thing they find to palliate. Yes, they can throw painkillers at you, but it doesn't deal with all these things. And what that uh, Bernard Erica case showed is that the offer of assisted dying is one effective way to help deal with existential suffering. Uh, and I'm glad you spoke at length about that because it, it, it seems to me, and again, as, a, as a, an outsider to all of this, that palliative care and end-of-life discussion have more in common with each other than perhaps has been acknowledged. There's such a thing called a Flanders model um, that I've, I've learned about in, in the last little while where traditionally and historically those two aspects of end-of-life care, if you like, for want of a better term, have always existed together. That's exactly right. And in fact... Um I spoke to the former head of palliative care in Flanders, a man called Arsène Mouly. Uh, it was a most unusual conversation. I was expecting to find this austere uh, medico, and I found a man standing in a paddock full of cow shit and gumboots and shorts uh, who had emus. It was very bizarre in Belgium. I'd, 
But he was this beautiful man. I remember saying to him at the end of uh, our conversation and lunch, I said, Sam, when I die, I want you with me. And he talked about his philosophy of medical friendship. And he, and he talked about, uh, in palliative care, he said it's so much more than medical. He said it's spiritual, that dying is a spiritual thing. He said there are times where I've lain with a patient who's dying for the whole night. I've lain alongside them. And he said, but when it comes to a patient who is clearly dying, and if there's nothing more to be done, and if they express their wish for euthanasia, then how can we say no? How can we tell a patient who is suffering, no, tomorrow you should suffer more? And so in Belgium and in the Netherlands and in Oregon, it is understood that palliative care and assisted dying are the same thing. In Belgium, three out of every four euthanasia deaths happen within palliative care. In Oregon, nine out of every ten of those deaths, those people are also in hospice care. These things are not apart, and that's why Clive Deverell is so sad that palliative care has been weaponised in this, uh, fighting against these laws when, in fact, they should be together. Our, our time is on the wing, so let me quickly put to you then a few misgivings that, that might be felt by either people in the room or people in the community. The concept of, of a, of a legalising of some kind of assisted death I can imagine would be perhaps opposed by some, not for the, the, the religious reasons or even the, um, the medical control reasons that you explained before, but perhaps for the same reason that many oppose capital punishment. Mm. Not that it's not warranted, but that we can get it wrong. Now, well, how, now how, yeah. how do we ensure that we don't get it wrong? Okay, well, I guess what you've got to look at is what is the law and how do we know that it's worked safely overseas? And I'll, I'll try and make this as quick as I can. So the Victorian Committee... Uh, did what no other committee's done before in Australia. They travelled overseas to Switzerland, Canada, uh, Oregon and uh, the Netherlands. It's legal, it's legal in four countries at the moment, isn't oh, in it? In more countries than that. It's, uh, in fact, uh, um, there's also there's versions of it in Germany, in Colombia, uh, Canada as well. Okay. I think I mentioned Canada. One in six Americans have access to this law, which when you think about a, a religiously more conservative country than Australia, you think, well, how did that happen? It happened because they got a sensible law and it works. Anyway... How, how did the committee come to this conclusion? Uh, there's, a, there's a pyramid of things. First of all, there are... Those who oppose these laws 
would rather you didn't realise that these laws sit squarely in the centre of these societies. They were passed by clear majorities of their elected parliaments. The Dutch laws were both framed by and are still championed and used by the Royal Dutch Medical Society, their doctors. The Belgian laws came from within palliative care. Uh, these laws uh, have massive public support. There's been no attempt to repeal them. The level of trust in doctors in all these societies is higher than it is in Australia. Then on top of that, on top of all that evidence, is the reality, as I just said, that there's been no attempt made to repeal or pull these laws back by any of these societies. So we know that these laws work. Describe, if you can, the, the checks and balances. Describe a system and the way that it well, might Well, I'll describe... A, we still don't know exactly what the legislation is going to be in Australia, but we have a sense from the committee's recommendations. Uh, there's an expert panel now working on advice to the government, being led by the former head of the AMA, Brian Aula. But I'll put it this way. The most commonly used scenario as to why you can't have these laws is to what's to stop the greedy relative coercing granny into putting up a hand to be uh, assisted to die? Um, and that's a fair question. What is to stop them? Well, let me explain how it works. First of all, uh, this mythical granny... Um, has to make a verbal request to be assisted to die. Now, under the laws as they're going to be proposed, you have to have a serious and incurable condition and you have to be in the last, uh, according to two independent doctors, in the last uh, months, uh, weeks or months of your life. And, and, to, and two doctors, can they can determine that because, as we know, sometimes that can... <laughs> that's mercurial. It's actually hard to, to Absolutely. pin that down. Absolutely. Uh, not all doctor prognoses are right. Interestingly... Doctors tend to be more optimistic, research shows, rather than pessimistic. They tend to give a longer time frame than a shorter one. Um, but remember, these laws are voluntary, so it's not a doctor actually... All a doctor has to do is make um, a diagnosis. Now, we're talking about a serious and incurable condition. We're not talking about acne. The vast majority of people that access these laws, the overwhelming majority, 80 90%, have cancer, or it's motor neuron disease, or it's multiple sclerosis... Uh, it's a serious disease. So when you front up to a doctor saying, uh, I think I need, uh, I want to access this law, you have to present with a serious disease. They are going to your medical records. They're going to your specialist. Uh, it's very, very difficult to coerce somebody into presenting a disease they don't have. And even more difficult to coerce two doctors, independent of each other, whose work will be open to review, unlike now, where end-of-life decisions, there is no review, it's very difficult to coerce those doctors to agree with that disease that doesn't exist. And then, once the two doctors have established that there's a, we're at the end of, end of times? You have to make a written request, uh, a, a verbal request. You then have to make a written request, which is witnessed by two independent witnesses, then another verbal request, and there has to be at least two weeks in between these. If then both doctors agree, if and if they have any concerns uh, that... It's a psychiatric thing that is driving your request. They can refer you to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They then, if they agree, the primary doctor, the first doctor you approach, can write a prescription for life-ending medication. This is a drink that you and only you can take which will end your life peacefully. It is the ultimate act of voluntariness. So only you in the end can take that drink. What if the doctors don't agree? If the doctors don't agree, the primary doctor makes the call. And what if um, none of the doctors allow, for whatever reason, they conclude that patient to do what they want to do? 
uh, then the request is declined. In the Netherlands, two-thirds of requests are declined for many different reasons. And those people are, are palliated until they die? Well, it depends. It's a very interesting thing in the Netherlands, going back to palliative care, is a lot of people that make requests, upon making the request, end up rescinding the request and going into palliative care. And this is one of the key things about it. One of the, as I said, the, what the drumbeat that came through this, the committee as it spoke to your community over 10 months is that these conversations are not being had. This is part of the reason suicides are happening because there's nowhere to turn to. There's nowhere to have this conversation. And the point about these laws, they are permissive laws and what they permit is a conversation between you and your doctor. And as the head of the Oregon Medical Association said to me, and they've had these laws for 20 years, uh, and the number of people that use them is less than half of 1% of all the people that die every year. He's a doctor, and he explained to me, he said, when a patient comes to you with a request for assistance to die, your first response is, well, let's see what we can do. Your first response is, well, why would you make that request? What's happening in your life? What kind of treatment are you getting? What kind of support do you have? What's happening in your family life? Doctors don't want to do this. Doctors are inherently conservative. To assist a patient to die is a very major thing for all people concerned. Yes. And so this, the law mandates, as it's being proposed, that doctors must go through all treatment options with a patient. Where are we then in terms of legislation in Australia right now? This, as we heard before from, from Dennis, we've had one bit voted down in Tasmania and various goes elsewhere, South Australia most recently, and now we're looking at something potentially in Victoria. Well, I think Victoria by far represents the best chance and that's why I was keen to come and talk today because uh, different to every other state where it's mostly been uh, individual politicians uh, or small groups of politicians that have put forward a bill, this is a bill that's been put forward by the government it's based on a committee that was led by uh, a Liberal MLC, uh, Ed O'Donoghue, a cross-party inquiry that strongly supported the law by a strong majority, um, and which is being informed by an expert panel which includes senior palliative care physicians, nurses, the former public advocate and the former head of the AMA. So there's enormous process and thought and consultation. Uh, over the last four months, this panel has had uh, over 300 meetings with 300 individuals across the medical community informing how to write this law. So there's enormous process gone into it. But do I think this law is going to pass, despite the clear case for it, despite the amount of process and thought that's gone into it, despite the strong public demand for it? I think it's a best 50-50. And why is that? Because what I've discovered is that there is a serious flaw in the thinking of the public about this, which is that most people think it's a no-brainer that we should have these laws, therefore they're going to be passed. But those who strongly oppose it, and the Catholic Church are a prime example, are deeply organised against. And they make sure, and they're doing it right now, that their congregations get in the faces of MPs. So for this law to pass in Victoria, and I know that there are MPs here from different parties, from all parties, uh, and they will know this, it requires you to be heard it requires you to actually activate yourselves. Go and speak to your MPs. And I want, to, I want to make this very clear. If this law doesn't pass in Victoria this year, it will be a long time before any such thing comes again. And as I said in that introduction, and for every week, month and year that the law doesn't exist, these horrors will continue. And God forbid that they happen to you. We are out of time. And I just want to finish on uh, something that... 
is very important to, to me, I think, and, and should always be important in front and centre in public debate, and that's the role of doubt. And it keeps us from becoming ideologues and it keeps us yeah. from becoming oppressors, I think. Is there no shred, no shadow of doubt in your mind about the potential dangers, the potential risks of a law like this? And if there is, can you speak to us about that? I spoke to a man called Eric Willick, who was the uh, from the Dutch Royal Dutch Medical Society, and and this is fairly early in the process. And uh, we were talking about the safeguards in the law, and I said, so that pretty much guarantees, you know, that nothing bad will ever happen. And to my surprise, he said, no, it doesn't guarantee against abuses. You can never have a perfect system. You can never assume that it will be perfect. But he said, what we do know is that there there is far more safety and scrutiny than existed before when we didn't have these laws, when we didn't know what was going on. So can I sit here and should I ever say hand on heart, no, it's impossible that something bad would happen under this law? No, it would be ridiculous to make that proposition. But what I do know is the bad things that are happening now. And I believe they're inexcusable. They can be dealt with. And the real, true, bad things that are happening now far outweigh the possible hypothetical harm. And, you know, it is often said by MPs that vote against this, well, look, I can't vote for this law because what if something terrible happens down the track? Well, I think that's a real abrogation of their duties. To actually turn away from these suicides and these people starving themselves to death and these clear testimonies of terrible deaths based on something that you're afraid might happen somewhere in the future, which the evidence doesn't support from overseas, I think is a terrible dereliction. And, and if... But if you want to talk about doubt, I'll finish by telling you the story. It's very brief. So I know you're looking at your watch. Uh, <laughs> Jerry Brown, the governor of California, uh, a Jesuit who trained to be a Jesuit priest. Now, California was uh, the second most recent state in America and its most populous to bring in these laws. And as the governor, he had to sign this into law. And because of his Catholic faith, he really struggled. And he spent two weeks... Uh, talking to other priests, talking to representatives from the disability community, talking to families of those who have died, talking to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, somebody who's actually spoken very strongly that it is the Christian thing to assist people to die. And in the end, he did sign this into law, this man with doubts. And he said this, and I think it was a deeply moral thing to say. He said, uh, in the end, I do not know what I would do if I were dying in prolonged and excruciating pain. But I do know it would be a comfort to me to be afforded the options offered in this bill and I would not deny that right to others. And I think that is a great example of a man of religious faith, a man with doubts that understood that this was the right thing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Denton. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.